gönder. Topic of our this evening is the controlling faculty of wisdom. And certainly, so this talk will be part of our series. Series of talks on the controlling faculties. You will surely remember that a controlling faculty is a factor, a mental factor, that exercises control in its respective sphere. In the case of wisdom, the sphere is the sphere of discernment, dasana in the Pali scriptural language. And that sphere of discernment then covers the um, covers certain of the sphere ranging from wisdom on the one hand side all the way to delusion or ignorance on the other side. Now does it make a big difference whether delusion is present or wisdom is present? <laughs> Obviously, there's a huge difference. Now, in line with previous Satna Dhamma talks, let us Satna first hear what the the Samyutta Nikaya has to say with regard to the controlling faculty of wisdom. So the reference, once again, is to the 48th collection of discourses, and this corresponds to the fifth volume, section 197. And what bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, and lay retreatants is the faculty of wisdom. Here, the noble disciple is wise. He or she possesses wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative leading to the complete destruction of suffering. This is called the faculty of wisdom. So one possesses, one is a, a noble disciple who is wise, one possesses wisdom that is directed to the arising, passing away of formations. Now, in the course of footnote mindfulness practice, retreatants do experience this very arising and passing away of formations. And this sadhana is one of sadhana, the so-called insight knowledges in Pali jnanas. And specifically here, you know, the insight knowledge of Udiyabhya Jnana. 
Now, this particular insight knowledge is defined in the Bhattisamita Magga, the path of discrimination, as follows, namely, the wisdom in contemplating the change of present phenomena is the knowledge of the contemplation of uh, arising and passing away. The reference is to the first chapter of the Patisamida Magga, section 1. Now, to elaborate on this just a little bit, not much, during the earlier insight knowledge, retreatant is likely to experience formations arising, then lasting, lasting for a while and undergoing changes, and then passing away. So retreatant then usually has sufficient time to carefully, microscopically observe what is happening during the three phases of an object. Now, having done this time and again, what happens is that a retreatant will then assume or infer that just as I'm experiencing formations now, as arising, you know, undergoing changes and passing away, so too formations in the past will have behaved in a similar way. And by further inferential knowledge, a retreatant will assume that just like formations are being experienced, as arising, undergoing change, and then passing away, well, the same thing will also most likely happen in the future. Now, during this knowledge of the arising and passing away of formations, a retreatant or the objects that occur occur usually as at much greater speed. So barely has an object suddenly arisen, does it disappear? So the mind has to be pretty sharp to closely follow what is happening. And thus, one then contemplates the change of present phenomena. Could you say the last sentence? Oh, like a re- yes, <laughs> sure enough. So, a retreatant, now then, uh, in the case of uh, experiencing this knowledge of the arising and passing away of formations experiences the change of present phenomena and not 
those of the future by way of inferential knowledge, nor those objects of the past by inferential knowledge. So the mind is totally focused on the present moment. Now, this particular understanding then is one step on the path leading towards sadhana, the realization of the Dhamma. But it's not the final goal as yet. And therefore, the Buddha states that this sadhana form of knowledge, this form of wisdom, then leads on to the complete destruction of suffering. No, the complete destruction of suffering, this expression stands for what? What's that? Uh, More than that? Liberation. More specifically? Path of liberation. Path of... Path of knowledge. Path of knowledge is all correct. Path... What's that? There you go. So, it refers asawakeya nyatnyana, the knowledge of the destruction of fatna suffering, the suffering that comes from, or just suffering. And that is a term used in reference to the attaining or attainment of arahanship. So the fourth and certainly final level of enlightenment. So a wisdom that then is directed to the arising and passing away of formations, and this happens naturally in the practice, such kind of uh, wisdom then is called that as a minimum, and certainly even further developed, such kind of wisdom is called the controlling faculty of wisdom. Now, what exactly do we mean by wisdom? Do we mean traditional wisdom such as farmers use for agriculture based on, uh, let's say, a certain, um, uh, well, sayings that when it's very cold at such and such a time of the year, then maybe one month later it's time to start sowing the seeds. So this is not what is meant by knowledge. What about attending university, listening to lectures, the wisdom that arises from this? That's not meant either. Now, as Venerable Bhikkhu Analayo has explained, at the time of the Buddha, there were different 
approaches to knowledge or to wisdom. Namely, the Brahmins relied mainly on ancient sayings handed down by oral transmission, and they took the, this as an authoritative source of knowledge. Now, Venerable Bhikkhu further states that while in the Upanishads one finds philosophical reasoning used as a central tool for developing knowledge. So, logical reasoning or philosophical reasoning. reasoning. And then, as a third approach, we have those wandering ascetics and contemplatives that relied instead in meditative training and intuitive knowledge arising from this. The Buddha, when asked in how he would position himself in this certain regard, then um, chose to um, say, well, direct personal knowledge uh, as arises uh, in the context of the development of the mind. Now, with oral tradition, there's always the danger that the texts that memorize are then memorized wrongly. So mistakes are being made in the transmission from generation to generation, or it certainly could certainly well be that certain of the texts to the original text already are flawed. Now, logical reasoning has its place. The Buddha himself very much made use of logic, especially in debate. Yet, he was keenly aware of the limitations of reasoning. And if, for instance, the premises of some logical reasoning was faulty, then the outcome would also be faulty. And reality shows that even though something might, a certain statement might be poorly explained from a logical point of view, and yet it might still turn out to be true. The Buddha distinguishes three kinds of knowledge depending on the condition of its arising. 
The first one is known in the Pali scriptural language as Chintamaya Panya, which then in English translates as the knowledge based on thinking. Then we have knowledge based on learning, Sutamaya Panya, and certainly finally knowledge based on mental development, Bhavanamaya Panya. Now, these three kinds of knowledge have their validity in their respective fields. But when it comes to realizing to understanding and realizing the Dhamma, well, then the limitations become obvious. Is it possible through just mere thinking to understand anatta, or even to fully comprehend what the experience of Nibbana is all about? So that's not really possible. do we gain an understanding of Nibbana through reading books or listening to lectures? Again, this does not work. So it is through the form of mindfulness or through mental development, that intuitive and eventually liberating knowledge or wisdom arises. And it is this kind of wisdom that the Buddha had in mind. Now, this Bhavanamaya has an amazing ability to bring about changes in the person in whom it arises. This is not necessarily the case if one were to read plenty of books. Knowledge, theoretical knowledge, arises from reading a book, but it's not assured that this will immediately translate into a significant change of conduct. Dhammapada verse 282 speaks to this, uh, uh, to the fact that wisdom arises out of meditation practice, and the Buddha puts it in the following words, indeed, wisdom is born of meditation, without Meditation, wisdom is lost, knowing this twofold path of gain and loss of wisdom, one should conduct oneself so that wisdom may increase. Now, to get a better understanding of uh, what is meant 
by intuitive new wisdom let us explore how you know, this term has been defined by the Dhammasangani and Satna also by you know, the Visuddhi Magga. So wisdom has been referred to as understanding, as scrutiny, as discriminative knowledge, as comparative examination, as wisdom that destroys defilements, penetrative wisdom, insight, clear comprehension, and then the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, and then wisdom that is like a sword, namely to cut through the mental defilements, and certainly then as investigative knowledge of the Dhamma. The path of purification of Isurimagra defines intuitive wisdom as having the characteristic of penetrating things or objects according to their intrinsic nature. So according to their essential nature, according to reality, The function of this mental factor of wisdom is basically to shine the light of Fatna wisdom onto an object and Satna thus then one can see and understand more clearly what is happening. So its function is certainly given as to illuminate the objective field, so the field of objects under observation. So by illuminating a field of objects, one is certainly then clearly dispelling the darkness, and in particular the darkness of ignorance. Wisdom, the Visuddhimagga says, is manifested as non-bewilderment or as absence of confusion, non-delusion. Now, as we have seen in previous discourses, the nearest cause for the arising of Fatna wisdom is certainly given as certain concentration, a mind that is well uh, united, unified, and certainly then, secondly, uh, wise certain attention.
wisdom is certainly clearly a wholesome mental state. It does not arise certainly together with unwholesome uh, mental states. It arises in some sense sphere wholesome consciousness, some sense fear resultant consciousness, and in some sense fear functional consciousness. And it does arise um, in all jhanas and in path and fruition consciousness. Now, Wisdom has been praised in various ways, namely as among all physical and mental phenomena, wisdom is said to be the most noble. The reason given for this is when wisdom is accomplished, all wholesome dhammas are accomplished. Now, among all factors that contribute to the realization of Nibbana, it is wisdom that is the most noble. The other factors are following wisdom in accordance with the Jataka. The Dhammapada contains a verse, namely verse 200, that then speaks of the connection between wisdom and happiness. So when wisdom is certainly present in the mind, which means certainly the mind certainly then is purified of unwholesome mental states, in such a mind happiness will be there. And that happiness is not necessarily a happiness that arises based on you know, the indulgence in sense pleasures. Now, since wisdom is certainly being attributed such an important certain place, then one might further ask, well, how to arouse that wisdom, how to develop wisdom, and what would you suggest? What's that? Meditation, yes. What's that? Satipatthana, yes. Mindfulness and the Four Foundations, or the Four Establishments of uh, Mindfulness, yes. Anything else? What about the faith that, uh, that we discussed uh, during the previous Dhamma talk? Is this needed, not needed? Yes. So, there are quite 
a number of factors that suddenly eventually or that in one way or another contribute to the arising of intuitive wisdom. Now, among those, we have, in accordance with a discourse from the Samyutta Nikaya, its fifth volume, section 411, four points. And these are very general points. First off, an association with superior persons, so with those who've uh, uh, practiced the Dhamma and Sapna then realize Sapna the Dhamma fully or to some extent. Then secondly, hearing the true Nadama, and then you know, wise attention, wise or paying careful attention to what is Satya being said, and then obviously uh, putting into practice what one has heard. Now, it's already over two weeks ago that Sadna our retreat started and during the opening talk the uh, shorter verses from the Chandana three verses from the Chandana Sutta were presented and Sadna so that young Devata asks how here crosses or sorry who here crosses over the flood and do you remember the answer to this one always, um, wise. The, one yes that's part of the answer one always perfect in virtue so this thing means uh, perfect in ethical conduct, then well-concentrated and uh, endowed with wisdom. One, and then as two additional uh, factors, one energetic and resolute. Such a one crosses the flood so hard to cross. So, in very simple now, words, the training in ethical conduct, the training in concentration, the training in intuitive wisdom, or, or you know, the training in virtue and the training in concentration leads up you know, to you know, the arising of wisdom. Now, In earlier discourses, brief mention was made of the gradual path of training. And that gradual path of training then outs or sketches the major stations that a disciple is likely to undertake while practicing. And it all starts with faith. 
So the arising of some very initial faith, yet still somewhat weak. And that faith then leads on to joy not quite yet it certain it might in this certain context it first leads to right thought namely thoughts about of renunciation and sapna then this typically leads on to virtue the training in virtue someone's willingness to voluntarily you know, you know, take the precepts live in line with the precepts that satna then that leads on you know, to restraint of the senses as we're practicing it satna here then you know, the practice in mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati sampajanya in Pali, then the overcoming of the hindrances with the help of effort, mindfulness and concentration. And as a result of this, one's concentration reaches full or some some strength and suddenly once suddenly the hindrances are suppressed then uh, insight knowledge intuitive wisdom can arise so with this suddenly then with this sketch that the buddha has suddenly uh, given it becomes obvious quite a number uh, of factors are uh, there that all in one way or another eventually contribute to the arising of intuitive wisdom now the samyutta nikaya in its fifth volume, section 850, contains this very short uh, discourse entitled Alawaka Sutta. And uh, it is this Alawaka who questions the Buddha, how does one gain wisdom? Kattam Sulabhati Panyam in Pali. The Blessed One then gives the following answer, namely, by placing faith in the Dhamma of the Arahants for the attainment of Nibbana. From desire to learn, one gains wisdom if one is diligent and astute. So, again here, we start with faith. Placing faith in the Dhamma of the Arahants. And that then leads on to a desire to learn. And this desire to learn is suddenly given in Pali as Sususam. So when some initial faith is suddenly there, the commentary, the Sarata Pakasini explains this will lead a person to approach a teacher, a, some um, a person who's gained the Dhamma at least to some extent, then lends an ear and hears the Dhamma. 
upon hearing the Dhamma, then hearing the Dhamma, studying the Dhamma, a desire to learn arises. And that, in conjunction with being diligent and astute and mindful from moment to moment, will then lead on to the arising of intuitive wisdom. So therefore, the Venerable Nesaidu Pandita Bhiwamsa of Phatna Burma explains that based on faith, a desire to practice, or based on faith, a desire to practice arises. That then will lead a person to properly aim the mind at whatever predominant object is coming up. Also, this will lead a person to exert effort. And these factors then lead on to the arising of some mindfulness. The mindfulness becomes sustained mindfulness. And then when mindfulness is sustained, the mind will fall squarely onto a predominant object and thus sudden concentration arises. With a concentrated mind, it will be relatively easy to penetrate the nature of a predominant object. Now, owing to the fact that delusion occurs on many different layers, and mental defilements are of different grades, namely of a transgressive grade or nature, of an obsessive nature, or at times of, or they come up, show up in a latent form, dormant form, because of this intuitive, penetrative wisdom is required. With concentration alone, one would not be in a position to properly address those mental defilements. With concentration, as we've seen in the context of the hindrances, what can one do? what does concentration do? Uh, it keeps the hindrances at bay. Well, it's actually effort that does that, and certainly it's concentration that suppresses you know, the hindrances. Now, that is not a guarantee that the hindrances can still um, occur in an, uh, at least in a latent form in 
the mind. And it is those latent or mental defilements in a latent form that are so difficult to eradicate. And this is the work of intuitive wisdom. Now, during one of the following Dhamma talks, we shall go more into delusion or ignorance, exploring what is satna meant by this. So, and that will then nicely contrast with this talk on wisdom. Now, This practice of mindfulness meditation can be described as a process of gradual purification. Now, purification is only possible when real changes take place. And those changes have to take place at different points in the practice. So for a retreatant to come on a six-week retreat, and then after six weeks suddenly walk out, being exactly the same as before, this is not possible. Now, what wisdom does, or insight knowledge, as it is also referred to, it helps you know, to rectify you know, certain wrong views, certain wrong understandings that you know, we have held on to for you know, maybe already you know, several decades. So when a retreatant keeps in the mindfulness practice, keeps seeing formations as undergoing changes, then this corrects what? This corrects which perception? Of permanence. That's correct. When a retreatant clearly sees the unsatisfactory nature of formations, this helps to correct which perception? Of sukha. So the assumption is, the wrongful assumption is that formations are conducive to pleasure, to happiness, and that is a wrongful assumption. And so you know, when carefully observing what is truly going on with those physical and mental formations, one comes to acknowledge dukkha as dukkha. And that then brings certain things into a proper perspective. Now, most of Fatna us assume the existence of a self, there is this perception 
of a self and in the course of our meditation practice we then come to make a huge discovery when we see that formations are happening of their own accord. And so with that then, the understanding of anatta removes the wrongful perception, the misperception of atta, namely of a self. Usually, as human beings, we tend to delight in formations. We can't get enough seeing visible objects, especially when they are desirable. Let's say when we are at some viewpoint, then we can't get enough looking at certain that you taking in that certain view. We can't get enough hearing or listening to desirable sounds, let's say like the chirping of the birds or music of whatever kind. And we can't get enough taking in delicious food and enjoying various tastes. Ideally, every day something else and fascinating. Now, when we sit or when we are at home, we want to be in comfort all the time. If things get slightly unpleasant, well, then we'll immediately switch on the TV and enjoy ourselves that way. Now, there comes a point in the mindfulness practice where all of this gets shattered. And <laughs> when a retreatant then upon carefully observing predominant formations, sees those same formations as rather disenchanting. And this occurs because one sees the flaws of the formations. And that contemplation of disenchantment then performs the function of abandoning, delighting in formations. Now, much more could certainly be said about wisdom, different categories of wisdom, but we'll keep that for later on. From a practical point of view, as retreatants, what can we do to ensure that wisdom arises from moment to moment? So if we're sitting in meditation and we realize that we're not really knowing anything about a predominant object of observation, then we might certainly want to readjust our effort, readjust our mindfulness, our concentration, and if need be, our attitude towards practice. 
Now, if we find that our practice, our understanding is the same day in and day out. So rising falling is always the same, and pain things are always the same, nothing new there whatsoever, then it will be high time to carefully check um, or review one's own practice, and in particular, the way one practices, and certainly then to make the necessary adjustments. Now, from a really practical, experiential point of view, there are certain subtle things that can strongly interfere with the arising of intuitive wisdom. Among those, we have concepts. So we have a certain idea of how you know, the um, practice should unfold. Or another thing, judgments, in particular self-judgments. Then self-evaluation and things like this. So these we want to set aside as quickly as possible. Now, the controlling faculties, as certain we have seen already, are not just the faculties themselves, but as a whole, working together, and certain of those two pairs of faith and wisdom need to be balanced, and the pair of effort and concentration also needs to be be balanced. So it is this balance of the mind that is another really important factor that contributes to the arising of intuitive wisdom. Now, The Patisamita Magga in its fourth chapter, section four, proposes certain ways to develop the controlling faculties. And out of Fatna, these we've Fatna already covered faith and then effort. Mindfulness we've spoken about in a general way, and then concentration in detail. And in the case of wisdom, it is, or when one is abandoning non-absence of wisdom, or in other words, delusion, that one is developing wisdom, or the wisdom faculty. When one is developing the wisdom faculty, one is abandoning delusion or absence of knowledge. So if at times much delusion comes up 
in our meditation practice, one way to proceed would be to fully focus on that delusion in whatever form it comes, penetrating this, trying to understand it as best as certainly possible, and by weakening it, by abandoning it, then what remains will be uh, intuitive wisdom. Now, A Dhamma talk on delusion will follow, and for the time being, allow me to give you just the essence of what delusion is all about, namely delusion from the Buddha's point of view, so that's in the context of mental development and you know, the Buddha's understanding of the mind. So the Visuddhimagga you know, defines delusion as having the characteristic of mental blindness or the second characteristic is that of unknowing anyana in the Pali scriptural language. Now, Every mental factor performs a certain function. In the case of wisdom, it, the function was to illuminate the objective field, as stated earlier on. Now, in the case of delusion, its function is non-penetration of the nature of objects. So this then means an object of observation is there, it is right under our eyes, so to speak, and certainly yet the mind, or there's not that effort to deeply penetrate into this object and to deeply explore, investigate its nature, that effort is not made. And so it's certainly delusion that certainly then achieves you know, this particular aspect. The second function of delusion is to conceal the true nature of an object. It is manifested as an absence of right view, and by right view is certainly mean the view of the truth of fitness suffering, or it is manifested as mental darkness. So intuitive wisdom illuminates the field of objects. In the case of delusion, uh, there is uh, this meant it, it is manifested as mental darkness. Now, unwise or unjustified attention is said to be the proximate cause for the arising of delusion. Now, delusion is a serious mental defilement because when delusion 
is satna present in the mind, then uh, it's can be considered as the root of all unwholesomeness, of all unwholesome states. Now, what else can we do to actively promote the development of uh, intuitive wisdom? Namely, when avoiding ignorant or deluded persons and cultivating and frequenting and honoring why the wise ones and reviewing discourses that then are that concern intuitive wisdom in this way the wisdom faculty is purified in a person Now, as mentioned in the previous Satna Dhamma talk on the controlling faculty of Satna faith, the balance of Satna, these two factors, is Satna very much important. So, when wisdom is in excess, then it usually manifests as cunningness and an intellectual cleverness. So the way this might manifest is a retreat and hears a discourse about certain, let's say, you know, the second insight knowledge about cause and effect, and certainly then the following day you know, during the interview reports pl plenty on causal connections. But that is not necessarily based on direct observation, but just on bare thinking. And then presenting you know, things during the interview in a rather intellectual uh, manner. And so that would be a case of such intellectual cleverness. Now, that's not certainly what the Buddha had in mind with intuitive wisdom. Now, when wisdom is lacking, how does it manifest? Very simple. Ignorance. Ignorance. That's correct. So then we will not know the true nature of formations. Now, when wisdom is in excess, and it certainly then is experienced, or is experienced as cunningness, as intellectual cleverness. Then the thing to do is to simply stop that and to go back to a very honest, direct observation of what is really going on. On the other hand, in the case of an 
absence or a lack of wisdom, deficiency in terms of wisdom, so ignorance will be there. What to do? Well, in this case, we have to observe the predominant objects more carefully. And then, quite naturally, wisdom will unfold. Now, both of these controlling faculties of faith and wisdom, they need to be well balanced. So the faith that arises needs to be balanced by proper understanding. If not, as we've seen, the faith will turn into blind faith, unjustified faith. No. Allow me to conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk on the controlling faculty of wisdom by quoting Dhammapada verse 276, namely, you yourselves should make the effort the Tathagata, so in other words, the Buddhas, can only show the way. Those who practice tranquility and insight meditation are freed from the bond of Mara. And this is it for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.